Welcome to the Hunt, Fish, Thrive podcast. This has been a dream of mine for a lot of years. Finding some way to bring together hunting and fishing and wellness and relationship connections and social connections and talking about habitats, uh, whether those are natural habitats or the habitats that uh, we have created around us or just been in that form our habits and, and the places we are, the people we're around. Uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about on the Hunt, Fish, Thrive podcast. We're going to do that sometimes by very directly talking about psychology, sometimes very directly talking about just hunting and fishing, but always trying to find uh, some connection between the two and how that can be useful uh, both to our hunting and fishing, uh, but also to our thriving in our life. Uh, to our well-being. So thanks for being here and joining us in this journey, in this uh, what we hope to become a movement uh, that brings about well-being, not only in our lives, but in the community of hunters and fishermen and in our community of our country. So thank you. So for this episode, our first episode, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, a recent elk hunt that I went on and uh, the setting of this is me getting ready for that elk hunt, packing and uh, preparing uh, and then we sat down and visited about, you know, kind of what's coming and what I'm thinking about and what I'm trying to do. Um, I am a newbie to elk hunting. Uh, I've been on uh, a couple of elk hunts over the span of 15 years. Um, done, like so many of us, done tons of reading and watching and, and thinking and listening and, and trying to learn. Um, don't have an elk hunting mentor, so I'm doing this all on my own. And uh, so thank you for joining us for this and have a listen. It's like kind of the outsider observation. You know, I'm like, it takes quite a bit to just jump in and not an easy entry. Yeah, you there's, know? there's a lot of gear. You know, there's a, so this guy, John Eldridge, wrote Wild at Heart, mm -hmm. a bunch of other books. He's a counselor, a Christian pastor I don't, I don't know exactly how he characterizes himself but um he says that every man filters everything that happens through the question do i have what it takes now that's generally a psychological principle right do i have the boldness do i have uh the wherewithal do i have the character what have you there's no doubt in hunting and fishing and lots of other things too uh, that I just don't know about golf. Let's say, um, do I have the gear? Do I do I have what it takes? You know, like we were looking at packs earlier. Um, I've just never had a good pack. When I was in the army, we had these terrible backpacks. I mean, like War, World War Two. Oh, they even had a name for them. I don't know, something about excruciating pain. I don't know. I don't even remember the nickname. Hated them, you know. Whereas now, like this year, I added this Stone Glacier Evo pack to my, to my do I have what it takes. Mm. And it immediately took me from, man, I'm kind of scared to go on an elk hunt. Mm. In fact, my last elk hunt, I didn't have that pack. I had this discount pack that probably would have been fine. It was certainly better than the ones we had in the army 20 years ago. Um, but, but towards the end of the trip, I was exhausted. So I, I kind of didn't have what it take took in the terms of fitness, which is also a thing that, you know, kind of fits with that. Uh, you know, so psychological, physical, and then gear, do I have what it takes? Um, and it, but it got to the point where I don't think I, if I got an elk, I don't think I could could get it out of the woods ethically, um, which is one of the reasons why a lot of hunters leave their hunts earlier or, or kind of sabotage their hunts even. I think I think I was doing that. Um, so so while psychological do I have what it takes is best, bolstered by physical do I have what it takes, gear can really help with that. Um, you know, and a, and a pack may be a perfect example of it. So... Yeah, it kind of makes sense yeah. because, I mean, for me, it'd be like I'm worried about 
the type of shoes I'm going to be wearing. So, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you're, you're talking about packs, but for me to dump in, which is very new, I'm starting from, I mean, very beginning. You, one could say the ground up. From yeah, you see what I did there yeah, with the there shoe. You did. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna yeah. start. I was gonna start with underwear. Do I have the right underwear? But it's not the know. ground though. Yeah, it's see? not the ground. Yeah, that would you be know. like. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I I, keep, I still have all my army. Long underwear, which is nice that I got all that for free. That's what I still use. Um, but to your point, uh, two years ago, uh, when I did an elk hunt, um, which was my first in like fifteen years, I did one a long time ago. And then two years ago, I did one and a bear hunt. Um, I did shoes. Uh, and I'd never really done that before. I spent, you know, a pretty good amount of money and a lot of research on shoes. Um, so, so your point's valid. And, and maybe to kind of what you were saying with, as you were watching kind of me load up, you accumulate that stuff. It's, I mean, at least for me, it's got to be in phases. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of that stuff represents... Christmas presents and birthday presents and, um, you know. Something that was uh, your granddad's or a number of things, right? For sure, you know? for sure. So. Um, you know, the two rifles I'm taking, uh, one of them was my granddad's that he yeah. bought at a farm sale. That's my backup rifle. It's not exactly the caliber, but the other rifle um, I've had for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I, I added a scope to it two years ago on that hunt so um which by the way was free because the chase sapphire card is worth it you build up points nice you get on amazon nice now yeah that, now they don't ever use the points yeah you don't use the points all of a sudden right there it says hey use your points and of course the exchange rate is probably horrible oh yeah, yeah which yeah. i've never I've never looked at to be quite honest but you didn't have to spend the real dollars yeah at didn't have moment. to spend the real dollars it was yeah. like you know spend, exactly it's a, it's it's that's right. It's a, probably a bad way to spend too much money, but uh, but anyway, but uh, but yeah, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I use my kids for it, by the way, too, um, like sleeping bags, sleeping mats. Uh, that's Christmas presents for them, and then since they're not going on the elk hunt, I might as well borrow them and you know get some use out of them. So yeah, uh, you know, but I, I really do do that so that you know it's kind of kind of part of it. Yeah, you know, because it does take a long time to build up the gear. And I, I still have some holes. Um, I still have some holes, but uh, but you get to a point then where it's doable. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's like um, you know, there's a lot of other e- easier entry things, you know, right? It's like okay, elk hunt. Let's put it on our our goal list, but um, you know. Oh, going out somewhere to to do a hunt in tech you know in texas or where we're at for a texan to go do right, that, do that with you no, know no but, connections but, yeah but just do it like you know something closer to home um where you know again maybe like white-tailed deer hunting yeah. you know and uh like a lot of people do mm-hmm. right yeah doves yeah so yeah there's a so in uh so r3 is kind of a big um kind of buzzword or acronym or whatever it is uh, in the hunting and fishing community. Uh, and it stands for, because hunter numbers and, and angler numbers have gone down percentage-wise for decades now. Now, interestingly, they've gone up in total, but that's because the population of the U.S. is, you know, I think quadrupled in that same amount of time. So the percentages have gone way down. Um so R3 stands for recruitment, reactivation, and retention uh, to get more hunters and fishermen so that, that those dollars, uh, you know, pay for conservation. Um, and, um, but, but entry into the sport from a gear perspective uh, is one of the primary things that people cite is, is not mm-hmm. getting into it because um, it can be really overwhelming. Um, and, and it's, it's hard not to, it's hard to resist getting the stuff mm-hmm. again, I think, because that's why I tie it to that psychological, do I have what it takes? Because we can't, we can't get the psychological, do I have what it takes very quickly? Like mm-hmm. that takes experience and, and a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for example, in the, uh, youth hunting program, Texas youth hunting program that I do a lot of volunteer work with, 
man, Academy and Bass Pro Shop has got to love this program. Because it's a lot of time it's first-time hunters. They don't need anything. The program will provide everything. They just got to take hunter safety, get a hunting license. You can borrow a rifle, gun, uh, uh, ammo, uh, clothes. You can wear any clothes. 98% of the hunts happen in an enclosed deer blind. You could be wearing, you know, rainbow colors. It wouldn't matter what you're wearing. Um, but almost everybody shows up in brand new boots, mm-hmm. hunting boots, brand new camo. They got their new rifle from Academy. You know, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, they might, I bet a lot of people spend a thousand bucks or more, you know, right. outfitting themselves for, uh, you know, what essentially is a free hunt, you know, so, uh, so that pull is strong. Um, of course, that's good because in, in R3, because uh, the more gear they get, the more likely you are to retain them. Because uh, now it's like, well, I got all this, I got this gun and this camo and I better go hunt again, you know, and. And that's where public hunting comes in, right? So, um, and, 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 you know, elk hunting's a pretty big jump from that, especially if you have no connections, that, which is another barrier to entry for folks. So gear and then jumping into it on your own can be hard. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I know I think about, I mean, if I get an elk on this trip or let's say when, I mean, I've had the privilege to hunt a lot, and I've I've cleaned in the field hundreds of deer. But I imagine it's going to freak me out when I've got that 500-pound elk laying there in front of me. Uh, you know, and the biggest thing I've ever seen is, you know, 200 pounds. You know, and I'm a couple miles into the woods, and now I've got this elk. i got to butcher it. Depends on what time of the day. Oh yes, because right. uh, you know I'm like an eight thirty bedtime kind of guy. I'll be on, I'm seriously because right. you know you watch watch the shows on YouTube. I mean they kill an elk in the evening. They're not back to camp until two o'clock in the morning. I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm going to be sleepy. <laughs> I don't stay up till two o'clock in the morning. I'm kind of legit scared about it. <laughs> so, uh, which is part of the you know part of the excitement of this stuff is just. Those those goofy fears, legit fears, big fears, little fears, uh, and to be forced to, you know, okay, doesn't matter if I like going to bed at eight thirty. Yeah, I just shot an elk. This is a first of a lifetime, maybe once in a lifetime thing. So I'm going to be out here till the job is done. You know, at least getting him cleaned up. You know, yeah. and and carry one load out, and then, you know, of course, getting the quarters cleaned and hung. Mm-hmm. Um, you hang them in a tree so a bear doesn't get them, and, and it keeps them cooler. Um, so, anyway. That's awesome. <clears throat> You're asking good questions, bringing up good topics. Yeah. Because one of the things we love about the youth hunting program, kind of all the guides uh, say, is the ability to repeatedly experience it through new eyes mm. is wonderful. Is is wonderful. Um so I, li- I like being mm-hmm. able to explain it. I was telling some of this. I was kind of talking through some of this elk hunt with my mom and and uh, my fiance the other day. And uh, my mom looks at my fiance and says, "I have no idea what he's talking about." Mm. I was like, "I know, Ma. And I'm not. Ta- I'm not telling you about it because mm. I expect you to know what I'm talking about. I'm. I'm just sort of enjoy experiencing your reaction back mm-hmm. to me as I'm talking about this stuff. Yeah, you know." Anyway, so, so uh, where you're headed, like, um, is there uh, beside bears? Um, you know, they they talk about like um, uh, like wolverines and badgers are can be notorious for being able to get, like, you hang it up, but mm-hmm. they're good at, no matter where you put it, they can get it. And oh yeah. So like, I mean, I guess I guess that comes later. I imagine there's a lot of fears that happen. What, like you said, the wind. You know that you don't even worry. You know you worry about. It. You're on. You're on the hunt. But then the it's a, you get that kill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get the elk, and all of a sudden you're probably you're probably one. You're not exactly sure how you're going to feel or think through it. You know. But two, I imagine there's probably another fifty things you begin to worry about. <laughs> so uh, no, they say um, you know once you get the animal down, that's when the work begins. Yeah. And you're right. There, it, 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 there's a little bit of pressure. Second season rifle, I'm going, 
Um, so right now, you know, the, it's lows in the 20s and highs in the 50s. So the yeah. forecast for the while well, I'm going to be there super nice. Um, so not a lot of worry uh, about the elk being out there for heat, but heat and sun often is the first thing you're worried about. Um, you know, if you kill that elk on a on a, a west facing open slope, that afternoon sun, I mean, it spoil that thing in you know very yeah. quickly. Makes sense. You know, so breaking that as, as they call it, breaking that carcass down, getting the skin off, and getting it cut into uh, the quarters, mm. uh, and getting it low. Uh, meaning like in a drainage, even where maybe there's some running water, mm-hmm. uh, getting it in shade, of course, uh, getting it not on a west or south facing slope. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's step number one. Yeah. Um, uh, before getting it out. So you might break it down and have to move it, you know, from a few hundred yards to even a half a mile or a mile just to a staging point. You might not take part of it all the way to the truck if you're a couple of miles in. I, I'm going to be hunting, since I'm going to be foot hunting from a base camp, I'm going to be hunting probably max at, I'll say, three miles in. That's where I feel like I can get an elk out from three miles, maybe four, but getting beyond that would actually probably be unethical on my part because uh, I just wouldn't be able to yeah. move it. Because it'll probably take me about six trips uh, to get it out. Yeah. Um, you know the the quarters and the head and the hide i I do want to bring the hide out Mm -hmm. so and i'm not going to try to kill myself and carry i mean there's dudes that can carry 100 pound loads but i'm I'm just not i'd rather take more trips but but anyway yeah you got to get it in a good staging area because then i can take maybe even two or three days to get it out if the Mm -hmm. weather's right weather's nice so you do in the sense that if you're getting it out later are you hanging it where where it's at there Mm -hmm. yeah do you have to do any other kind of prep so that i mean you know, it's you put it in a game bag, yeah, um, and which can be anything from old pillowcases. That's what a lot of guys used to use as game bags, but just something to keep the bugs off of it. Okay, um, because one of the other main concerns is is these big flies will lay eggs in it, mm. and um, so these game bags. Uh, I have some, you know, some bought ones. They make they make disposable ones, cheap ones. You know, they're pretty flimsy. The ones I have, I went ahead since this is. You know, this is probably not a once in a lifetime, but certainly a first in a lifetime when I get my elk, whether it's this trip or, or whenever it is. Um, but I'm going to do it till I get one. But, um, you know, to spend, I don't know, I don't even remember now, 25 or 30 bucks on, on game bags that are antimicrobial. So they have, you know, whatever chemicals in it yep. that'll, that'll block that. Uh, they have a mesh size that's big enough to breathe so mm. it can stay, stay cool but, the, but yeah. the flies can't lay eggs through it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's super important. Yeah, important yeah that's super important. So. Again, that's some t- somewhat related to the heat, you know, yeah. the time of year. But, but yeah, you want that anyway. Um, and, uh, yeah, just get them hung up high enough. I do have to tell you, uh, you were talking about the bears. So, so it's black bears in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I like about this area uh, is the last known Colorado grizzly, which was of the subspecies of the Mexican grizzly, uh, was seen in this area and actually killed in this area uh, in 1979, uh, which, you know, in, in the grand scheme of the West is, is uh, not that long ago. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, I was like five when that happened, but, um, but a hunter, uh, which was very controversial, but a bow hunter uh, says that the bear charged him and he, he killed it, stabbing it with an arrow. Unbelievable. And, uh, at, which was unbelievable for a lot of people. So a lot of folks think that he killed it and then, you know, came up with that story. Well, and then the bear did chew on him. Um, mm-hmm. and he got, he got mauled. Uh, I don't think, I don't know for sure. So I don't mean to denigrate the story, but I don't think super seriously. I mean, getting bit by a bear would be serious, you know, yeah. no matter what. But that wasn't life-threatening. Yeah, I didn't like. But know. it it obviously passes at least the first test, you know, uh, you know, sniff test there on the story. Yeah, yeah. Of saying, okay. Oh, it's been researched uh, to the nth degree. I mean, at the time, yeah. since then, people have researched it to try to prove. If it was, don't, yeah, yeah. But they think, um, 
I mean, some say there are grizzlies in the north of Colorado that have come out of Montana and Wyoming, mm-hmm. um, and and that sort of everybody knows it, but nobody wants to admit it because then, you know, they'd have to mm-hmm. do certain protections and things. But um, but then others say it's you know it's not true. So because I mean the grizzlies they have their own um, way about the seasons. They're not they're not no grizzlies actually gonna they need a or need need a reason to to, to migrate that far, right or no. Um, so, I mean, like, there wouldn't be a reason for grizzlies in Montana to come down to Colorado? I mean... Northern Colorado is what they're wondering you know, about, but I'll be in southern Colorado. So but, I mean, but there. I'm saying, but there wouldn't be... There wouldn't be... It, they would... The grizzly would need a reason to do that. Um, or do they travel pretty far? They'll and, just wander, yeah. And then, you know, may not return or... Um, Montana, or are they just... They probably would. I mean... You know. You know, but, I mean, you know, that's how game kind of spreads out over yeah. time, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's kind of like uh, Colorado just had a real controversial wolf reintroduction mm. ballot measure. Um, so they had the public vote on whether or not they should reintroduce wolves, um, which was controversial, especially in the hunting community, because we would like it to be it to be natural science based. Well, usually they say we want it to be science based, but sociology is a science, so. Technically, when they vote on it, that's still science-based. Um, might not be good science. I don't. I don't know. But, um, but we generally want it to be natural science-based. Like, is that a sustainable population, or is it good for the other sustainable populations? And is it natural? So wolves are naturally repopulating Colorado anyway. If they naturally repopulate, like the grizzlies might be doing, is what why I came up with this. Um, many would consider that better than doing a ballot measure to spend funding tax dollars to just, purposefully reintroduce them. Yeah, just them. so they can. Yeah, just, just yeah, yeah really so yeah. that maybe they can sort of yeah. have checked a box, we're taking care of the earth, which is good, yeah. of course. Um, and wolves are particularly controversial because um, they kill a lot of elk. Hmm. Yeah. You know, and, you know, that's the natural system, but as is often talked about in hunting, we don't live in a natural system anyway already. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we had all the elk habitat and all the elk that we had 200 years ago, then we could have all the wolves we had 200 years ago. But we've got a lot of condos, and and which is fine. I'd love to have a condo in the mountains myself, right? But, but that does, in fact, remove elk from the land uh, to put habitat in, in, you know, a backyard instead of... You know, and so, you know, we want it as much like it was 200 years as possible, but that's that's a managed thing. It can be nothing else. It's mm-hmm. always going to be. And, uh, I mean, I know the wolves like to eat elk just as much as I'd like to eat elk, but wolves don't pay taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess I've always known this, but I guess as I, you know, think more about Hunt Fish Thrive becoming a reality and what messaging it has um, versus some, you know stuff that could be peripheral or distracting. Um, you know, I find that that a lot of folks that you might think like stuff that I just think is common knowledge isn't even remotely close to common knowledge. Not because I know something special. Yeah. Um, you know, but just, um, you know, just don't think about, you know, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're not, <laughs> not addictively consuming hunting and fishing media like I can be prone to do. Um, you know, so. Well, I think more and more, as you said, you know, the numbers of, it's a pretty amazing thought, you know, think about um, the percentage of people that were hunting and fishing in mm-hmm. the past. Mm-hmm. And so the conversations were going to be quite natural. I mean, you think in that world, you found that most people you knew or half people you knew or a lot of people you knew, um, any had hunting and fishing experience mm-hmm. or it was a part of their life in some way. In some way, And yeah. so like to see that while the numbers are going up, um, crossing paths with people. It depends on where you're at, right? I'm sure Dallas, Texas, 
you know, it's easy to cross paths uh, versus other other parts of the country. You might, you know, you might be the only person, you know, and they may, you know, you, you're entering a different uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, have your stuff in your garage and people, you know, uh, but, you know, it's to say that that decline is continuing to happen. And that really is just saying that it's fewer and fewer people you're running into um, where... Uh, they they are you know hunting and fishing mm -hmm. at all. It's yeah. pretty pretty amazing you know to consider that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, when I was a kid, so I grew up in a fair sized town, and I don't really know many other kids that hunted. Just just two or three maybe I can think of, and they probably got tired of me because I just wanted to like talk about hunting with them constantly. Um, but every kid I knew had some connection to it. Mm -hmm. Like like their dad had a couple of guns in their closet and we'd look at them. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully we looked at them with permission and under supervision. But, um, but um, and you know, then everybody I knew, you know, their granddad or their uncle or somebody had a farm and did you know, a little hunting or something, you know, some connection to it, uh, direct connection to it. Mm -hmm. um, not many, very many degrees removed. Um, you know, whereas now it's just often not the case. I mean, gosh, I, this isn't necessarily hunting, but when Caleb, my son was about, um, I think he was in the first grade, we were dove hunting, we killed a rattlesnake. And of course, you know, you got to cut the rattles off. A boy's got to have rattlesnake rattles. And he loved them. And I asked him if he showed them to his, or told his friends at school. And he just looked at me so seriously, and I don't know if it was with disdain for my stupidity <laughs> or, or sadness, maybe both. Um, but he said, Dad, the kids at school aren't like us. They would not understand such a thing. They, they would think we were weird for killing a rattlesnake and thinking it's cool. And, and I think he was partially wrong, right? I think part of that was him just being young and inexperienced because I cannot believe that even city kids, as he said, um, I, think, I think boys just think rattlesnake rattles are cool. I mean, I, you know. Um, but, but for him to feel that way really, really made me sad, for him to assume that he would be some kind of outcast. And, and my kids have experienced a little bit of... of direct comment, you know, uh, at school is they've not, they kind of keep it on the down low, but not ashamed of it either, you know, and some kids have said some stuff to it, but for the most part, and, and, uh, they've, um, gotten a great reception from that and a great reception from teachers. Um, and, and then I'll say as a counselor, um, going back to what you're saying, people want to connect with it they have some visceral gut felt connection with it. Yeah. Um, and things on hunting are really coming around, um, you know, some full circle. Because one of the things we do like to say, you know, it's kind of the party line, is um, that hunter numbers are declining percentage-wise. So in my lifetime, when I was a kid, I remember reading in the magazines that 10% of the population of the U.S. were hunters. 10% of the population of the U.S. were anti-hunters, and the other 80%, uh, you know, were cool, you know. Um, and sometimes we forget that in the hunting community. We start thinking that we're the 10%, and, and then it's 90% against us, which is just not the case. In fact, we probably make more of that 80% that either doesn't care or is fine with it. Uh, we might alienate them by kind of, you know, having a persecution complex, it's been called. Um, most people are cool. Um, my, my niece, she was 10, watched Bambi, said to her mom, I can't believe Uncle Mickey kills these beautiful deer. She and I talked about it. She was cool with it in about three minutes. Um, and now she wants to go hunting so bad, you know. She's a 14-year-old cheerleader, you know, um, wants to go hunting you know um but 
so those numbers if those numbers still get cited a little bit but the numbers are probably more like um, five to seven percent now of the population now, again part of that is you know population growth sort of outpacing you know so that's kind of skewed the numbers a little bit um, but what's good about that is actually less there's probably less anti-hunters now you know that those numbers have stayed pretty close to exactly the same even in their going down um, and it's still about 80%, or, or now I guess it'd be about 84, 85% I've seen. There's probably, those numbers yeah. probably change, but, um, um, but that are, you know, fine with it, you know. And again, we have to assume lots of them, because everybody I talk to is like, man, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do mm -hmm. that. Um, people that would surprise you, people from every demographic you can imagine. Um, you know, and I'm saying this like through counseling and stuff that I've done. You know, because um, there's just something about about hunting and fishing. But but as much as I love fishing, even hunting. Um, back to that, do I have what it takes? Mm -hmm. You know, um, I love to tell kids, for example, on those youth hunting program hunts. Um, you know, I'm with a kid and a dad that I don't know, and we're setting. And, you know, tight. I mean, we've got these chairs crammed in, you know, in a deer stand and the gun right there, you know. And we, of course, have lots of safety protocols, extra safety protocols on a on a, on a a trip like that. Um, but I like to look those kids in the eye and tell them that one of the things I love about those hunts is to give them the trust to be around them with a loaded gun that I hope that makes them feel really good about who they are, um, that they can be trusted. Mm -hmm. um, well, that, that's, that's exciting for a kid, I think. You know, I saw that with your yeah. kids, you know, when we did some shooting on a, went out to the, to the country. You know. Anyhow, so that, that's kind of part of the Hunt, Fish, Thrive concept. Even, you know, all really Hunt Fish Thrive, I think, wants to do is just make that a little bit more, that, that those connections more overt. Those connections have all, uh, mm -hmm. just, just more, state them more point blankly. Uh, they're there. I mean, there's no problem with them not being known or, or, uh, or unstated. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about hunting and fishing is um, you just got high, uh, people that do it know that it's about more than the kill you know yeah we live in a different world so like um i saw something I, again it's these me we live in a meme world right but oh but it, you know uh the internet used to be where you you kind of escape to like watching a movie but people now are escaping the internet uh today uh-huh to get into you know whatever that real world is i mean it's not always hunting and fishing it could be the going out and throw the baseball but mm -hmm. Um, but absolutely, um, seems like people are prime, the, the, maybe the spectacle of, of that technology and over-connectedness or overwhelm or over-information or over, really just by information, just, just the, my goodness, it's just nonstop. Um, TV doesn't get, turn off at, yeah. what was it when we were kids when, it, you know, like you'd flip the channel and you just got those color bars. It's like, well, come back tomorrow and there'll be TV. Yeah. Uh, not anymore. It's not even just TV. I, you know, I'd forgotten about that. That's right. Program it would end ending. The, remember, the, yeah. this, this concludes our broadcast day. Yes. And you'd come back tomorrow. You That's know? right. Yeah. That's right, because I would yeah. get up. I, I've always gotten up early. My son gets up early yeah. now. He's figured out. Um, if he gets up before me, he's got video and video game time. <laughs> there you go. That's smart. And, and hey, if he's going to... He got up at 4.50 on Sunday morning... Um, he had been grounded from TV for a little uh, falsehood about the fight he got in at school. Yeah. Um, but um, but uh, yeah, I got up at 4.50 so he could watch more TV. And I'm like, more power to you, man. I, but I remember doing that when I was a kid. Yeah. And, uh, and it would be just the bars. I'd have to mm -hmm. wait. I'd have to find something to do. Yeah, uh, you just would stop. Before cartoons would come on. But yeah, people just, you, um, you find an inability to, like, uh, it almost like it, it chases you. Or it's just, it's just there. It's in your face. Yeah. And so, like, the prospect, I mean, the idea of packing everything up today, you know, uh, is 
you know, you're you're taking a limit. You're taking limited resources with you. Mm -hmm. Hope you have everything you need. You're going into this very remote place. Now, again, the Orange Army's out there, but I mean, that's when I ask about the camping, and it's like, uh, you know, using terms like primitive camping or you know whatever. Um, there is um, an allure just naturally to that. That's a perfect um, word, allure. You know. Yeah. So even if you're not going, just watch from the outside in, going, man, that's cool. You can go out and be. I mean, I don't know. I mean, probably there's nothing out. I mean, there's nothing you can do to be connected outside. I don't know. I mean, cell phone may or may not work. I have no idea. Yeah. Probably depends. You know, it's where the closest cell yeah. tower is, right? Like anything else. But you're 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 packed up and heading out there. Yeah. Um, and you will be disconnected from that information feed that's, you know, this, this modern world. For sure. You know? Yeah. <clears throat> you reminded me of something. When I was a kid, I mean, Lonesome Dove wasn't just the greatest movie ever. Yeah. It was, it was a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I mean, I even wore suspenders like Gustus McRae, <laughs> you know, when I cowboyed. And, and uh, you know, but in the book... Uh, Newt, uh, kind of the young character, so you know the coming of age is a part of the story for Newt. And uh, they're on the cattle drive, and they get to Ogallala, Nebraska, and he goes into uh, a store, or a building, uh, not really a store. They were selling some stuff there that he probably shouldn't have been buying. But anyway, um, and uh, but in the book, it it describes how he he cowered, he ducked mm -hmm. because he hadn't been under a roof in so mm -hmm. long that it was odd to him. Mm -hmm. And uh, get little glimmers of that sometimes on these trips with the cell phone like you were mm -hmm. talking about. Or it's like, oh, I have, I have service. Who, you know, and it gets mm -hmm. after a couple of days, it's, you know, you kind of go through this ebb of like, dang it, I don't have service. You know, this is annoying. I mm -hmm. can't listen to my Pandora. I can't call my girl. I can't, you know, whatever. To, oh, isn't it wonderful? I, I don't have service. Thank you. Like, dang it, I have service again. Now I guess I should look something up. Dang it, I guess. Mm -hmm. I didn't care about my email, but now that I have service, oh, dang, I probably better check my email. You know? Uh, and then later you kind of come back to it and you're like, dang it, I wish I had service. Huh? You know? Um, but maybe that's that parallel, how far we've come that that, you know, Newt experienced that with being inside a building of all things. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. for us, it's technology. You know. Yeah, well, it's whatever we're we're comfortable with, and then get the opposite of. Yeah, you know. But I, I, so yeah, like, yeah. Um, but um, but I I remember. I guess one of the reasons I thought that story is is I crave that, and I think people do. But I know even when I read that at you know what twelve years old or whatever, it's like man, that's what I want. I want to I want to have situations in life where at the, at the time not having any idea what a cell phone was or that it would ever exist. Uh, you know, I want to have that with buildings. I want to be outside so much it feels weird to go inside, you know. Um, now, technology or driving a little bit. Sometimes mm -hmm. it can be, you know, there can be some trips. You know, mm -hmm. you go on, it's like, man, I haven't, I haven't driven in a little while. This is weird. Yeah. You know, even just a couple, you know, a day or two, you know. That, that feels good. Yeah, you know, I think to so. To have that just tiny little awkwardness. Yeah. yeah. I think so. I was just thinking about... It's not related to anything, just, I mean, um, just thinking about having, you know, the time where there was a lot less information. Yes. Um, and it's not even information. It's like there's a big difference if you have to sit down at a desk at a computer for Internet like we did when Internet was first on the scene. Mm -hmm. You had to go find a desktop computer. That computer didn't, you didn't pick it up and take it with you later. Yeah. You went to the internet, and that was what you did. Like, okay, we're going to drive somewhere. Let me look up the instructions. Oh, let's print them out on paper. And now we have them with us in the car. Let's wonder if it would be faster to go <laughs> the interstate right. route or the country route. You, or had, this the route. you had the paper. You, you yeah. were good. Now it says in the middle of it, uh, exit here and, you know, you can reroute. And um, the thing, uh, you know, it's like... Am, am I changing or the, you know, something like the, you know, you get overwhelmed, you know, the overwhelm or oh, whatever. Yeah. So it's like maybe an age, you know, you worry about more things the older you get. I don't know. But I can imagine 
what the amount of information and actually that growing can do, you know, and then to be able to unplug, you know. Yeah, well, there's a good example of, you know, how this Hunt, Fish, Thrive stuff connects with sort of just life. Um, you know, now, I mean, for this backcountry hunting, pretty much everybody relies on their phones anymore. You know, we had paper maps, and then we had those handheld GPS units. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still have one that has a screen like that big, black and white, you know, and doesn't have any mapping. It just, you know, lines. And, and then now I have one of the nicest ones that exists, um, but I don't really use it at all for GPS. I just use it because um, I can send texts, satellite, and, uh, and my lady worries about me, so I can push this little SOS button and and uh, the cavalry's coming to get me. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, if I find the second grizzly bear in this area since 1979, I might have to call them. Um, but, um, but, yeah, you rely on your phone. And, and the mapping apps are incredible. I mean, there's a whole genre of, you know, I mean, there's Google Earth and, and Gaia and just resources that are built, you know, for mass consumption. Um, but Go Hunt and OnX, uh, you know, are two I use, um, you know, that have, I mean, these crazy mapping features, mm. uh, crazy awesome, I mean, you know, um, that you can use in the field even if you don't have service. Mm. Um, you know, you can download, at least use a lot of it, yeah. um, you know, and track and, and do all this stuff. So pretty, pretty hooked to the phone in the field now oh, wow. um, as a resource. Uh, can't get away from those paper maps. Um, I mean, they're still handy. Um, you know, but, um, you know, but that's nice to have. And I, gosh, I was going to say something else about it. And I, oh, um, where that ties with life, what I was going to say is, um, so now there's all these like courses on what's called e-scouting. So this whole thing about e-scouting, you know, um, uh, electronic scouting. Mm -hmm. Um, and all this work you can do before you go on a trip. And, and, and to your point, uh, so research has actually proven that, you know, sometimes like, like sort of in the kind of edgy coaching realm, they'll say, you know, young people today ought to be able to do whatever they want to do in life. They have access to all the information that they could ever need, um, you know, to know about that thing. And so research actually proven that that's actually a net mental health detriment on people. Because, again, back to do I have what it takes. Information can help me have what it takes. But the presence of that information can make me feel more like a loser because I'm still not doing anything with it. I could just get online and in 10 minutes know all about I mean, you could know how to do heart surgery probably in 10 minutes on the internet. I mean, I'm, I don't, you know, I mean, the steps, you obviously couldn't do it, but, um, you know, but that actually puts up to your point, a pressure, hmm. right? Well, we even see that now. It's like, even for the last few days, I'm like, oh man, I haven't e-scouted as much as I should have. I should know more. I should, I should know exactly, you know, I can shouldn't just know I'm going to go hunt in this drainage. I should know the exact GPS coordinates for a spring or a meadow or, or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, the point being, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, keep talking, yeah. whether it's in life or, or this elk hunt, you know, a lot of information can be a blessing and it can be, uh, it can be a lot of pressure too, that can just keep you from enjoying the moment, enjoying what you're doing. You know, I'm just sitting here feeling kind of funny because I'm assuming you're going off and you're just like, no, actually, we're pretty connected out there in the middle of nowhere. And my my notion of being an out, kind of an out, outside looking in is like, um, I, it just felt like you'd be a lot more, less connected. Um, but technology's making sure there's that connection. And there's a good thing to it. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, just on that note, I was going to mention this earlier. The one of the most common backcountry hunting incidents is when you kill an animal hmm. and then cut yourself. Um, and uh, in fact, there's a uh, little shout out to Dan Staten on elk shape that was actually a pretty key part of this whole elk hunting journey for me. Hmm. Um, 
he uh, was using a super sharp knife and cut himself bad. Hmm. I mean, real bad. Um, I mean, like life-threatening bad, hmm. you know. So, um, so yeah, I remember when it hit me probably 10 years ago. I was out on a, so Padre Island National Seashore down in South Texas is like they say, it's like the, one of the most remote, undeveloped beaches in the world. It's 70 miles uh, one way uh, down the beach. There's no way of getting out. And so I'm down that beach about 50 miles uh, by myself, camping, uh, shark fishing. And it just hit me, this might be kind of dumb, <laughs> right? Because, I mean, if a, you know, if a catfish bites me, at home, it's not that big a deal. Yeah. But if a shark bites me 50 miles drive, four-wheel drive, drive, mm -hmm. so like going 20 miles an hour at best, speed limit's like 10 miles an hour, I think. Um, you know, that could be bad. Yeah. And it hit me, I, I'm a dad, because I was a dad, I had become, I was a new dad at the time. It's like, okay, you know, time to be safe yeah even if it's overdoing it you know because yeah there's going to be on this hunt i mean it's not going to be remote like you know mountain men in the 1840s remote or alaska remote um but it's definitely more remote than my backyard <laughs> yeah i bet so like the access i mean again um you know public land uh -huh. hunting uh -huh. you know um you know you're driving up you know, like how, how, and this is just a novice question. How do they, you know, how is that managed? Is it managed by number of people in a certain time period can be in a certain area? Like when you go to camp, how do you know you're, you know, what is, how many people are in a whatever mile radius around you, if you can even know that? For the most part, that's not regulated. Uh, yeah. There are some exceptions. Um, more connected with uh, places like Yellowstone and the Colorado River, you know, through the Grand Canyon stuff, where you have to get permits. Yeah, um, they're starting to permit some some famous stretches of river, or I guess not starting, I'm just starting to know about this. So they're permitting more stretches of river. For the most part, these types of hunts, like I'm doing, take place on either uh, U.S. Forest Service land or uh, Federal Bureau of Land Management land is not we don't have a lot of that in texas so we don't really know a lot about that but 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 that's kind of the way it's run up in the west and then there's state state lands too um but for the most part they don't really regulate how many people are in there uh during some of the seasons they regulate how many people have tags and so let's say in first rifle elk which is a draw hunt so you have to apply and get awarded a tag um, let's say there's I I have no idea. Let's say there's a thousand hunters mm -hmm. that get tags for that first rifle. Um, so that kind of regulates how many people are out there. Mm -hmm. But there could be bird watchers, there could be mountain bikers, there could be dirt bikers, there could be ATVers, there could gotcha. be fishermen, there could be, um, you know. There's people up there be, are not hunting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, that's your yeah, point. I got for you. sure, for sure. And, you know, and they're usually not out in the field. I mean, I yeah. guess I've, you know, I've only done a couple of these hunts. I guess I've never seen a non-hunter. I mean, I've seen them at like the roads and the campgrounds yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And then, if, and then there are, uh, there are some established campgrounds. And so if they're full, they're full. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if most or, or all four service lands have what's called dispersed camping you can just kind of camp anywhere. I mean, there's some rules about that sometimes, like near water sources or different things where they you can't camp. But, but for the most part, it could be a million people out there. Hmm. Yeah, so there's just kind of some sort of situational regulation, I guess. So, so what that does for me when I look for a place to hunt is, um, you know, one guy might be looking for lots of roads he can drive on. I'm looking for the least roads and I'm looking for the farthest from the paved roads and I'm looking for uh, the the roads that are uh, not only not colored like a highway is red on on USGS maps 
um, and then two solid lines is a dirt road and then like dashed lines are four-wheel drive type roads so I'm looking for those you know mm -hmm. I want to go where um, you know you just eliminate you know you eliminate mm -hmm. the guys with uh, tow behind the truck RVs mm -hmm. right they yeah. just can't get up there yeah I mean they can maybe drive up there but um, but they got a base camp way back where they yeah, can get yeah. their RVs. Yeah. Know? Which is cool. They look awesome. I'm, I'm envious when I drive by them. I'm mm -hmm. like, oh man, that'd be nice. You know, but then I got to remember I can get 20 miles farther, you know, in. I can get to places they can't get. Mm -hmm. You know, and then there's guys that got horses and llamas and they can get in farther than I can go. You know, wow. they can go in, you know, then they go to the end of the road and can go 20 miles if they want to. That's know? just the ability to be not on foot and go further yeah 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 and, and carry a lot with them yeah you yeah. know and they're in they're just popping a tent or whatever mm -hmm. when they're out there and yeah it's a whole different set so it's like uh yeah so there's like um just connecting yourself a little bit further out yeah you know yeah. Or whatever the terminology is you know yeah so. yeah and and i think you know that kind of goes back to where we started with gear um that's part of why i got that pack as a matter of fact um I'm not currently doing a, a, a pack in, as they might call it, backcountry hunt where I, where I walk in, mm -hmm. you know, two, three, four, five, ten miles, whatever, um, and, and camp there and then hunt around there. I'm just going to go in two or three miles in the morning and come out come that out. night. Right. Which is a lot of extra walking, but, you know, it's, it's pros and cons. Um, but really for me right now, it's not really a choice because I've just, I don't have the gear. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, that's a, that's a super lightweight sleeping bag, a super lightweight tent. Um, I actually have that stuff, but it's 30 years old and, mm -hmm. and now stuff weighs half as much. And so back 30 years ago, it was like, yeah, this is the best. But now that there's lighter stuff, it's like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> you know, it's kind of hard. Um, even though it was fine back then, right? You know, it should be fine now. But, of course, I'm a little bit older than then, too. But um, but I'd like to do some of that someday. So mm. that's still where you progress, yeah. you know, sure. in your experience and in your gear. Um, and and I, you get up there in that same place um, and you're, you take notes on some things. You know, on the area, yeah. On your scouting, and maybe you see, oh, if I did this, you know, maybe I could walk out here to this, you know, at some point. For sure. Uh, because I imagine scouting is, um, I mean, really a big part of it, right? So huge, so. huge. And and so they, I don't know that anybody's actually studied this to put a number to it, but like Randy Newberg, who who puts a lot of this information out, maybe everybody just says what he says now. But there's sort of this idea that the average out-of-state, not hunting, you know, with a local connection, like if I'm out-of-state but I go up there and hunt with my brother who lives there, that's different. But, but if I'm just coming on my own, no mentor, nothing, um, you know, it could take, like they say, six years all the time is the number. And Randy Newberg talks about that, you know, so um, that he's elk hunted for six years before he killed his first elk. Um, and, and that might have been hunting you know, all season up in Montana where he lived versus, you know, six years and just going for a week. Um, so there's a, my point is there's a pretty big learning curve towards success in the sense of actually killing an animal, which is not the, of course, the only definition of success, but, um, but a big part of that is learning the country, you know, um, cause it's just, it, there's a lot to learn and how to, to move in that country. Um, you know, it's intimidating. You see, you know, a couple of ridge lines, and you look on the map, and you think, okay, I want to go over here, and then you're standing there, and it's like, there's three ridge lines between me and there, and it's like, that's impossible, you know, and it's not. It's, it's still two miles. I mean, it's a lot more elevation than, you know, here in two miles, but it takes a while to realize mm. that looks a million miles away, but it's, that really is doable, you know, um, and, and again, I, I think, you know, this, this hunt, fish, thrive concept is applying that back to life. Um, and that's what I see with folks all the time is, oh, man, I thought this was a good idea when I was sort of just conceptualizing it. But now that I'm looking at it, oh, I can't, that, that can't be done, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and they just lack the experience 
of, of proving to themselves, I mean, you know, oh, that's very doable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not talking about huge things here. I'm talking about, mm-hmm. you know, pretty basic things like, um, um, you know, in family counseling, you know, uh, to help people realize you actually can have that very hard conversation and not yell. That's very doable, you know, or, uh, you know, like I'm saying, you know, I can cross these ridges and get there. It might take longer. It might take some more effort, but, you know, uh, that becomes very satisfying, you know. Uh, and then more, to your point, more and more and more and more and more. Yeah, the elation yeah. of doing it the first time is a big deal. For sure, but right? intimidating too. Yeah, I imagine so. Yeah. yeah, to do it. And I think that's why there is such a, a great feeling of achievement when you've done it because you had that first you know, that anticipation feeling mm-hmm. of either I can't do it, that's too far, or, what, or that's too difficult, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then you do it, and you're just like, whoa. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know? What's next? Yeah. And then... Uh, and that's the biggest thing that keeps people handcuffed in mental health or life health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is they just, they just don't realize they can do it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, in fact, not to sidetrack too much, but... When I'm doing family counseling, one of the things I look for, and I love it, and it pretty much happens with most people, you know, they'll come in, and they'll be, like, really happy and giddy. And I'm like, all right, catch me up. What's going on? And, um, you know, you know, or maybe I'll say, seems like y'all are really happy. What happened this week? And, and they'll say, well, we had all these really hard conversations. Or they might even say, we had all these fights this week. Of course, I know the answer now, but, but you know, at first it's like, well, then, then why are you so happy? Because, and they won't say it exactly like this. I'm paraphrasing and putting fancy language to it. But, but they'll say, um, we realize now we're free. And we're more free than we thought we were going to get to be. Because we thought when we came here that our freedom was going to be to not fight or to not get mad anymore. And now we realize that wouldn't have been true freedom. That would have been another handcuff. It would have been a better one than the fighting one. But, but still would have been now how do we keep from fighting or getting mad? Whereas what they realized is we could get mad and fight, but not scream and yell and insult and blame and it explode and blow up and become all this stuff. We never realized we could just have disagreements. And that's much more freeing, right? Um, and 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 I've kind of joked even with this hunting thing. In fact, I always people that know me, you know, I was like I'm going to write a book called, you know, and that's really all I got is like some line. I don't even have a book or an article. Um, but two years ago, I, I went on two of these hunts, a bear hunt on public land in Colorado in the same unit. I drew an elk hunt and a bear hunt on the same unit. So kind of that idea that they would fit together. And, um, and I even thought about writing an article or something after, afterwards called Failure Set Me Free. Um, it was actually liberating, you know, to not get a bear or an elk in some ways. Because it helped me realize, I mean, it almost would have been bad if I would have gone and had immediate success and then there still would have been this notion if you go to Colorado and spend all this time, money, energy, and effort, you got to come back with, you know, coolers full of meat to be successful. I'm, I'm glad that I got to go and say, not at all. I wasn't the definition of success at all. Everybody says that, that it's not the definition of success, but obviously, you know, you'd like to get stuff, mm-hmm. right? And so it's kind of nice, you mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, and, you know, we even kind of joke, especially in fishing. In fact, you've been on the other end of this about 15 years ago. I remember one time me and Donnie were catching so many stripers every day. It was just crazy. I mean, we were killing them. We were skipping work to go fishing. We were killing them. And so we knew you didn't necessarily love fishing. But if we were catching fish, surely you would love it, right? So we were like, okay. Like yesterday was one of the best days of fishing we've ever had in our life. Let's go tomorrow. And you went with us, and it sucked. <laughs> but, and we were just, how can this be? Nothing's changed. We were literally killing them for, you know. 
But I tell you, when we've taken people fishing, it's almost always been that way. Hmm. You know, it's almost like we, we will joke and, you know, sort of do this, but like the fishing gods make you earn it, you know. Um, and, um, and so there's no, you know, and I guess that's funny with fishing because it's like it's not, you're not the only person there. Like when you're by yourself, yeah. you're like, well, I got this learning curve and all this, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but, um, but anyway, there's some liberation in that. And, uh, you know, and in, I guess recharacterizing, you know, what failure is, you know. Um, by the way, to your point, I was going to say too, just real fast. Um, one of the things that's sort of known, and again, hunting and fishing and thriving parallel with life, uh, you know, the type A 90s, you know, set these big goals, these big goals, these big goals, you know, and there's something to be said for that, right? I have every intention of going and getting an elk, right? But we also know, again, whether in hunting or in life, you got to have these really concrete, achievable sub goals. You just got to. From a mental health perspective, you have to, but that's, not, that's also not softening things up. That, that's how you got to do it, you know, to prove that it's not soft. It's pretty well known. You know, we love to study Navy SEALs and psychology these days. And one of the things that's just a proven, as close to a fact as a thing like this can be, is one of the things that's true about the guys that make it is they don't plan to get through Navy SEAL school. They plan to get through the next evolution, which might be hours, maybe even minutes at times, you know, maybe days sometimes, you know, but not very much bigger than that. You know, um, and then they just keep resetting, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, on that. And and so an example with with elk hunting is uh, you got to set these staged goals. Um, so for this year, my goal, for example, um, is I want to put a good stock in. Uh, so I want to find elk, mm-hmm. and I want to find them and and get myself in a situation where I can put a good stock in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my goal. And of course, I can't guarantee that happens either. Right. And I mean, I'd like that stock to end in a great shot and a successful harvest and a heavy pack out and, you know, finish all this business of all of these things that um, have have kept me from elk hunting as much as I'd like to have um, these these fears of not having what it takes. Um, but um, but uh, but that's the goal is, yeah. is to see and put a good stock on, you know, well, the flip side can happen, too, is like, you know, first year you get the kill. And then you do four more without a kill. There's probably another whole whole psychology to that. For sure. Right? It's like, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, that process there, but it would be, it's probably similar. There's probably some sports allegory, you know, well, things too with that. But. I'll give you a counseling one, though. Back to those families. And I, I don't know whatever just hits me now. I haven't calculated this, but it seems like this happens more with older teenagers and their parents than it does couples. And maybe that's because there's a just a difference in that relationship, you know, not to knock on teenagers' volatility or to knock on parents attempting to control things, but but just that power differential. I don't know, but but actually, a lot of my families where where that's the dynamic after they have that revelation, uh, we fought and it didn't turn horrible. Um, they actually tend to do worse sometimes because I, I think, I mean, I don't think actually, I know in some cases it scares them that they, they can't replicate it. Yeah. You know, um, you know, they found this bliss and accidentally on purpose finding this outlet on the way it could be, but oh my gosh, what if it can't be that way in the future? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and not to get spiritual now, but, um, but one of the things I love to do in counseling is, is use the Bible at least as one of the most well-known mythologies and, and sort of uh, experiential psychology books ever written. Um, and there's even a passage in the New Testament that says if a, if a person is once enlightened and then returns to their old ways, the evil spirits come back six times worse. Well, there's no doubt in mental health there's a dynamic like that. I mean, we see it in addiction. We see it in family stuff when people have a revelation it actually can really scare them Hmm. because you know again now they don't know if they can replicate it 
you know, and, and, and now kind of like information, if I'm, if I'm supposed to know this, I'm supposed to do something with it. Mm -hmm. Now they accidentally on purpose discovered this, but, oh, now I guess I'm supposed to do it on purpose and I don't know if I can. Mm -hmm. Right. And, 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 and I think that actually causes people to self-sabotage on big hunts like this. <laughs> I, I really do. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, I observe people and of course people talk about this on podcasts and stuff, but I observe their hunts and, 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 and I'm glad to hear in the podcasting space that there's been a lot of, think what podcasting does different than some other means is people are much more candid. Mm -hmm. And so they'll talk about leaving trips early mm -hmm. or, or quitting on stocks or, or one, I thought I was the only loser that did not getting up till 10 o'clock in the morning and not even doing the morning hunt, you know. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why that is, conditioning and, and, and some things, but I really do think an element is a bit of, is a bit of some self-sabotage, not being ready for a number of different reasons for that success. Hey, thank you so much for being here. And, and uh, giving a listen to our, our first ever podcast. You know, like you, I've listened to so many hunting and fishing podcasts and so many other kinds of podcasts, personal development uh, and whatever. I can't believe that I'm here recording our first podcast. As we said at the beginning, this is something we've been dreaming of for a long time, trying to bring some content to you that can be helpful. Uh, but we know there's a lot of options out there. So thank you for giving us your time. Thank you for giving us your, your thoughtfulness. Uh, thank you, if you so choose, for giving us a like, uh, giving us a share. We would love that. We're just trying to put some things out there that can be helpful to people in the context of hunting and fishing, uh, which we so enjoy to do, and we know you do too. Thank you for being here, and we look forward to talking with you next time.